Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Related to Geeks podcast, the podcast about a geeky family. It is Monday, September 2nd, and we are here at Tinker's Tavern, and we will be here uh, the first Monday of every month for the foreseeable future. Um, tonight, we have my brother, Carl, and my father, Harry Larry, on the mic, as well as several other people in the chat that are going to be contributing throughout the evening. And we're going to start with our geek agenda. So the way this is going to work is I'm going to roll a die and see who gets put on the spot first to kind of talk for a couple of minutes about whatever geek-related thing they are into at the moment. And the way I did it uh, means that I have to continue talking now. So you're going to hear my voice for a while. <laughs> so I hope you enjoy it. Uh, mine's going to be real brief. It is a project that I have... Uh, in concept, but not have actually like done anything to develop it. But I was watching a YouTube video where somebody was thrifting because that is something that apparently I do. There's all kinds of entertainment on YouTube, and that's the one I chose for that week. Uh, and I saw somebody come across like an old beat up dollhouse and was immediately inspired to find my own beat up dollhouse and convert it into a zombie apocalypse dollhouse because that just spoke to me. So I haven't found the dollhouse yet, and I haven't really developed anything beyond the fact that it's something that I want to do. But I have looked at some stuff online, and apparently it's not something that a lot of people have done yet. So I feel like it's kind of an original idea, even though it's really not. There have been zombie dollhouses before, but I want to do it. So that's my, that's my geek agenda item. <laughs> that's cool. Holy wanted, moly, yeah. that's what a cool idea. <laughs> and it's so obvious. Like it's such an obvious and cool idea that I'm surprised it's not like a trend. Like it's not like something that uh uh there isn't like a total ton of links uh uh heading to zombie dollhouses. That was do the part that was the part that confused me as well. There is like a really like legit one. If you just search zombie dollhouse, you can find some Google images of it and it's really well done but it's not as widespread as i thought it would be cool i should suggest that to my daughter for something to do with the old dollhouses that she has yeah and i find like it's probably going to be more common to find one that's kind of beat up at a good price and that just adds to the the zombie apocalypse atmosphere so that's a bonus for me but if i find one second hand that's already kind of pre-destroyed and I can just like put some popsicle sticks on to make it look boarded up it, it's gonna be great all right I'm rolling another die all right Carl we're just going up in age you're next <laughs> so I'm supposed to talk about something I have been doing lately that is geeky or a project I have been doing lately that is geeky Either. yeah yeah okay all right well I'm doing... coming up too uh, uh, I have been doing working on a project. I, I am I am contributing to the uh, the glut of OSR retro clones, and I am working on my own. Uh, and so that's something I've been plugging away at. And I am, I would say, at at the best level of of uh, what's what is what am I trying to say? The best level of uh. uh I don't want to say aggrandizement or whatever. Like the most I could ever say about my art is it's fair. It's okay. <laughs> it's not good. Um, so for my retro clone, I've actually been finding public domain images, many of them from, you know, hundreds of years ago uh, and modifying them to make them look more fantasy. So I took like an old sketch from the 1800s of a, uh, of a warrior from some ancient culture. And I, um, I drew in a goblin head <laughs> over <laughs> the ancient warrior for my retro clone I'm working on. It's not uh, quite set in stone yet what it's going to be called. Right now I'm calling it Dwimmer Star. I don't know that that's going to stick though. Uh, but it is it is pretty much of of it's I've house ruled basic expert Dungeons and Dragons so much that it's it's becoming its own game, and so that's what this has kind of grown out of. Is Dwimmer Star one word? Yeah, Dwimmer Star is one word. I don't know that it should be. I but... think I think you got a winner there because I did a Google search and there are no instances of Dwimmer yeah. Star yeah. one word on the entire internet. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, if if you Google it as two words with uh, quotation marks around it to not get like you know a star dwimmered, um, uh, there's one result, and it's not as two words. It's at the end and beginning of a sentence. Like, yeah, it's it's it. I like it, and it, and it has something to pertain to the campaign world this game is set in. <laughs> So it's not just like yeah. a, it's not just like, not like that, you just, just did random word generators until you found something that was right. Google search approved. Right. The sun, was, the sun is a big ball of magic in this campaign world. Uh, that yeah. That's where it magic. Is, it is an actual archaic word and it is in Tolkien. Yeah. Dwimmer is. Uh, yeah. Dwimmer. The, the Dwimmer yeah. Lake. Yeah. And then, uh, <laughs> the Dwimmer Lake is in Tolkien and um, uh, Dwimmer Craft is what they say Saruman has when he changes shape and stuff yeah. like that. And it's uh it's a it's a word that there's a variation of it, Dwemer, that Gary Gygax was very fond of and used it uh, in a lot of his writing. All right. Well, dad, I guess it's you now. Okay, I've got two things that's going to be The first is uh the Gamer Plus website that Carl and I have been working on. It's just been a really fantastic uh fun thing to do. It's it's been my hobby for the last few months to try to make it actually work right, and uh, and we've got a really um, intense, um, heavy duty creative gamers, publishers, artists. You know, it's like everyone on there is like a major game creator of some type, DMs and bloggers, podcasters. It's really exciting to be reading what they're doing every day and and communicating with them. And then the other thing is that I started this uh, mini-zine publishing, and now Vivi and I are writing quests for mini-zines. So we're on our third quest. We finished uh, Caves of Doom and The Witch's Panacea, and now we're doing a mystery quest. Fantasy Fall Festival Mystery. So... Fun. He's also been doing 3D printing. That that that's just way better at projects than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I got a monopress 3D printer for a hundred bucks, open box, and it works great. And some of the models I download don't print good, but most of them do. All right. I am trying to load up my show notes because I am professional in this that I am doing. Uh, So we're ready for our geek topic, right? Which is kind of a funny topic for this week. It's just called winging it, which could be interpreted of two ways. But I I earnestly just want to talk about winging it in general um, because I feel like we all have experience of doing stuff like that because I know Carl has... I uh, had to wing a uh, uh, D&D game or two in the past, I'm sure. And uh, Dad is a, a stage performer, so there's a certain amount of winging it that may occur in those instances. Uh, but I just thought, thought it was a funny topic to start with because I am exceptional at winging it and sometimes find I even feel better about what I've achieved when I wing it versus if I put a lot of prep into something and then realize... It didn't do as well as I, I had imagined it was doing. So I actually kind of prefer winging it to being fully prepared. So this was a good topic for us to start with. So I can feel like maybe maybe this uh, this podcast of, 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 of winging it this first time around is actually the smart decision rather than me just not being prepared for this podcast at all. <laughs> <laughs> because you're winging it. I'm winging it, right? I mean... It's it's really on theme for this topic. So the fact that I, I didn't prep at all for this evening's uh, podcast was all like very meta for the topic at hand. So it was all planned. That's what I'm going with. I would also like to mention that everyone here is welcome to open their mics and participate in this. Well, I, I, like I'm going to I'm going to put Carl on the spot a little bit. Do you like um, I know even when you have a planned out. Uh, 
like quest for for a, a DM party or for words for for a DM session, uh, you you still leave it fairly open. You like to have it to where you can let the the party kind of decide what paths they want to take and you leave it fairly loose but do you like to just do everything off the cuff or do you like having guidelines better or a kind of a understanding of where you're going i'm uh well it's kind of strange because there are parts that i'm very adamant that i i never want to know what's going to happen like as far as narrative or plot I do not generate those when I run RPGs. I do not think in terms of, of narrative and plot for um, the way you would think of like a story. I don't really want that in my brain, not because I'm like story gamer versus simulation gamer battle lines drawn, because once those get in my head, I think I'm on the path to railroading the players to a certain position. So... What I do like to have is environments and characters. And then I wing everything else. So as long as I know the environments and the characters, then uh, literally anything can happen because it can generate out of what the players do to the non-player characters. As long as I know what that non-player character does. Now... I only need to know two things for that. And that is what they want and what they're willing to do to get it. If I know those two things, I can play any non-player character through any situation Mm -hmm. and be fine. I don't need to know a full length backstory of how they got where they are or anything like that. That can, that can come out of play and just kind of be made up on the spot. That's fine. But I need their actions to make sense. So I need to know what they want and what they're willing to do to get it. Or I went up with that situation where like, well, why would they do that? They, that wouldn't help them. That w- they wouldn't further their goal. I don't need to know that they, you know, were raised in a monastery or, or, you know, uh, are passionate about crochet to make those decisions make sense. I need to know that they want to be safe and they're willing to fight to stay safe, or they want to be, uh, powerful and they're willing to scheme and bribe and mm-hmm. anything but fight to do that. Uh, you know, if, once I know those things, then the character, the non-player character actions, they flow very easily uh, within the game. Well, and that's kind of like the basic things that you need to make a character seem true to themselves, right? It's when people start acting against their own personal goals or acting in ways that they wouldn't normally act. Mm-hmm. Do they not seem like a, a, a fully realized character, but you can, you can fake a lot of stuff about a character, but as long as those core values are there, they mm-hmm. feel, they feel very organic. Yeah. Once um, I start making the non-player characters do stuff to like artificially aid my player characters, yeah, that's, that's becomes a problem for me. Well, and there's something about, like, you can't have a an NPC uh, be, like, lying and scheming in one instance and be, like, truly virtuous in another, another instance and have it flow right or have it make sense or translate in any way that the, the party's going to respond to. Um, however, you can definitely have a hidden agenda. You don't necessarily have to play the, the NPC's cards all at once. Mm-hmm. Um so you can have that internally knowing that he this this c- character that you've developed, even if they may appear virtuous to begin with, is willing to scheme and lie and steal or do whatever to reach their ultimate objective. Um, definitely can create some interesting encounters. So, Carl, are you the same way with monsters? Do you think in terms of your monsters' motivation? Well, a little bit. Now, the the thing is, when I run Dungeons & Dragons, uh, my monsters, for the most part, um, all monsters, are spawned, not birthed. They are extensions of an evil will. So it's, it's a lot easier to determine what they want, which is typically to kill humans and uh, be products of greed and avarice from an evil entity. Uh, you know, so it's it's not necessarily always true uh, that they're like that. There are some monsters that are exceptions to that rule, but like orcs, goblins, those types of things, they're all 
spawned creatures from dark wizards and dark magic. So it's interesting. Um, the elements that you're talking about as far as your your development and your, your non-player characters, there's there's kind of two writing styles that exist that, that are talked about the most, and those are the ones where, as an author, you, you plot out all of your your story beats, right? And then you kind of write your characters around the plot, or there's the one where you develop the characters and kind of let them organically grow and you don't have as many as much of the plot developed at the beginning and i am much more i like to have kind of a loose plot have like some some beats that i want to hit but don't necessarily worry about mapping out the entire story and then just kind of organically let the the characters evolve as as their motivations become apparent or as as the development occurs and I I feel like that's an easier way for me to write because otherwise I feel like I'm forcing characters to do things to benefit the plot and I hate that. I hate when I'm reading a story where the characters are just doing stuff to make to advance the plot and it doesn't really feel like those characters. George R. R. Martin has been one of those that's been talked about a lot about how he writes characters first and plot second probably part of the reason why it takes him so long to write a book because he has to keep going back and figuring out ways to fix the plot once he realizes he's he can't continue the path he's been wanting to do mm-hmm. but it's also it's it sometimes feels like a slower process but it feels like a much more organic process and i feel like the story benefits from that because the characters feel so much realer rather than just products of a story you're trying to tell only the characters matter. If the plot's great and the characters are not intriguing and not engaging and you don't identify with the characters, then you won't like the book, no matter how great the plot is. Uh, I mean, I've I've encountered very plot-driven readers. Now, they there's definitely, I think, a difference still where they appreciate a good character, but um, I've... I've definitely seen some people that they were just like, it doesn't matter how good the characters are. If there's not a solid plot to keep the story moving, they're not going to read it. So there's a balance there always. I think the, the, the situation where that's always true, dad is serialized uh, media. Serialized media is all about the character. Uh, And Dungeons and Dragons is a serialized uh, a thing, you know, that's just by its nature. It's a serialized. You're coming back for the character. That's why you're coming back to the table is for those characters, uh, not just yours, but also the non-player characters. That's what people remember most about the narrative of the game uh, is the, uh, you know, the grumpy innkeeper that made them laugh. You know, that's going to be more intrinsically stuck in their head than the fact that the seven wizard kings from 1,000 years ago uh, dropped the planet into darkness and then were beaten by the whatever holy order of Shamashul or whatever you know all of all of your epic background is not important at all you know it's it's absolutely they're coming back to talk to your fun NPCs and talk to their player characters and advance that narrative that if there is a narrative element to your game that's the one that's going to really grab your players yeah i think you're on to something on the the serialized versus like just a uh a, a short story or or a very set story um that's mapped out from the beginning uh, because you can definitely see examples in TV shows where they had a plotted out story that would have made sense had the show not ran as long as it did, but because the show became popular and the characters ultimately had character development that was counteractive to the, the final plot uh, points that the was originally put out when they go back and try to force those that that final story beat it really feels off um and so i feel like if you're gonna do a tv series and you're gonna have to have it like plotted out completely you're gonna have to commit to a certain number of seasons and a certain number of episodes and the industry is not built that way i mean if the show's doing popular they're gonna try to keep it on as long as possible 
Um, yeah, and then you end up unless with, it's Game of Thrones. <laughs> and then you end up with How You Met Your Mother, which is terrible. Yeah, How I Met Your Mother was definitely one of the ones. I don't, I don't know. I know there's others examples, but How I Met Your Mother was the one that really came to mind. Um, but yeah, it's it's an issue for sure when you try to force a, a plot that doesn't really exist anymore. And so I'm with you. I, I like as as little as possible um, and just kind of wing it when it and see what the plot does. I mean, the yeah. truth is your characters will tell the story and there will be a story to tell. Yeah. And this is what happens in D&D games. I mean, the 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 thing that happens most often is you have imagined your game as the dungeon master, as some sort of epic quest to save the world. And your player characters are scoundrels and thieves. And that's essentially who they are. And so mm-hmm. they end up shifting their characters to match your game so they can go save the world on this epic adventure. Uh, you know, that's that happens very often. And that's I, why I think it's a huge mistake to have plot or story-based adventures or ideas for adventure or you know i think adventure should be the goal you know of the game not the uh foregone well yeah i guess foregone conclusion it's like you're gonna have an adventure because you have to save the world because you care about this person and they don't care about that person so Mm -hmm. so place the stuff in front of them let them lead to what they care about as player characters, what they gravitate to. And that's fine. Um, a very interesting example of, of, of this is, and this is funny because it's a game that um, I believe both you, Megan, and Dad played in. Um, so do you remember this was at Family Reunion, I think, there was um, a thieves group that we were trying to evade. They were led by the ox. I remember. Okay. And the ox's daughter uh, shot a bow and arrow through one of the party members and killed them. And uh, so, because of that, um, she became like the big villain. Like, everybody wanted to get her and take her out. And they did. They killed her. Right? Right? The ox's daughter is now uh, uh, dead, and now you got to go take on the ox. But really, the ox's daughter was the villain for that group because she's mm-hmm. the one that killed their friend. I am running that same scenario with Courtney and some friends of ours, my wife Courtney and some friends of ours, um, and through a just a different set of circumstances, a different approach, a different communication, they've befriended the ox's daughter. And that's how they got on the inside and learned all this stuff is they became friends with the ox's daughter. See, and that's my favorite part about uh, D&D. And as a, as someone who plays primarily as a, a character, I, I very rarely, if ever, DM but but someone who plays uh, in a lot of D and D games and likes to kind of you know ex- experiment and I've even played in the same quest before right and with different parties and situations where things were different. What I like about it is that if if you let the party kind of drive the story forward rather than trying to like force the party down, it's the difference between feeling like the main character and a side character, right? Because if you're the one that's progressing the story, you're going to feel like the main character, even though in the grand scope of the world that you're interacting with, you're probably going to be a bit character no matter what, right? Because uh, a lot of a lot of these quests that I play in, at least, I know there are those ones that you were talking about where the party is saving the world, but a lot of them are just, you're going to loot a dungeon or save this small inconsequential village or whatever, you know? I play a lot of those kind of campaigns, um, but I still feel really important because the decisions I make have impact. Whereas if I feel like the DM's just like, okay, and now you go to this spot, and now you go to this spot, and then there's this person here, and then I'm just like, I'm not, 
I might as well not even be here. So for for from the player perspective, having that freedom of choice really makes each character feel like they're making an impact on this world. Um, even more so, I think, than if they were just being forced into this position of, oh, you're about to save the world. Well, I feel like that makes me feel less like I have control of my character and control of, of what I'm doing um, if the DM kind of forces me. Even though it's more grand and epic in scale, maybe instead of saving the world, I would rather just go and sneak behind the enemy lands and steal some stuff and run off and have a have a good time with my stolen goods. Um, and that still feels like I have more control and I feel more like a main character rather than just a bit player in that scenario. So it's funny how even though what your party could be doing would be much less grand than what you would imagine, they feel more in control and more um, like, like the driving force of the story. I'll, At least from my perspective. I'll give another example from a game we've played in the past of this type of behavior. Um, this type of, of running the game where you're basing it off of not what you consider what the narrative should be, but based on purely how the non-player characters will react. Um, so, uh, Megan, the zombie game that we played that one night. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was fully prepared for the... Um, redneck in the truck to be friend or foe i was mm -hmm. fully prepared for him to be an ally or a huge villain i i he ended up becoming a huge villain but there was certainly a set of circumstances that could have happened to where he would have been a huge ally but i was basically basing it on this guy is totally out for himself and will help or hurt whoever he needs to do to make sure that he survives and is well taken care of. And so in that game, because people were so loose lipped with the big secret of that game, um, he became a huge villain because he wanted to use that secret for himself. Whereas if they were not so loose lipped, he would have just been your ally through the whole thing. And, it it changed the entire game and made it way more intense than it would have been mm -hmm. possibly without it. Um, uh, but it's just, it just became way more interesting. You didn't know this guy very well and you, you decided you could trust him. Not you specifically, uh, Megan. I don't think it was you who spilled the <laughs> I don't think it was me either. That doesn't sound like a Megan move. Um <laughs> But, I remember uh, the character I played in that game too, and yeah. that doesn't sound like that character's move either. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, totally could have gone the, either way. In the quest that uh, Vivian and I are riding, we have a setting, Milligan, and there are people, characters, NPCs that live, and there's a little sketch about them. And then we write a setup, and it could be four paragraphs. It's all got to fit in a little mini scene, so can't be much. And we write a setup, which is like the story so far kind of thing, you know. And in that, there's an implied goal, you know, sometimes more specific and sometimes might be treasure, you know, and other times, you know, solve the mystery or go get the medicine. Um, and then that's it. We quit writing. You know, that's where the adventure begins. And we have ideas of how the characters might solves the problem but there's no telling if that's the way they're going to go with it yeah there's also a, a certain amount of flexibility you have to have as a dm because sometimes even if to you the obvious solution is there right i mean it's it's to you it's obvious to the party they may not realize that that's a clue they may not zero in on the thing that you no matter how much you put it in front of people they just may not understand that that's the piece of the puzzle that they're missing and they can completely overlook it and then you just end up you know feel like you're beating the head against the wall kind of situation but it's even with your puzzles you have to kind of have multiple solutions and allow people to kind of organically figure out ways around it because i know carl definitely had one um it was a song reference wasn't it mm -hmm. uh and the people at the table weren't familiar enough with the song to connect the dots. 
And so we came up with this whole scheme about how to hide to hear this secret code, which is actually song lyrics. That was an Easter egg that Carl put into the game. But since none of the party was connecting the dots to the to the song and was able to just pull out the song lyrics from from their brains, we instead our party hid and waited for the henchmen to come through and then they sang the song, which was great because Carl got to perform the song for all of us and it was just a fabulous time. <laughs> um, but you know, you have to have that that flexibility across the board. It's not just the story beats, it's also the puzzles and things like that. Because your your party's rarely gonna do things that you you know want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's also something to be said for at a certain point realizing that what you're conveying is through the inferior uh, uh, way you're communicating it uh, is not making sense to the people at the table the way that it would make sense to the people. Uh, in the dungeon, right? The mm. characters versus the players. The players don't get this. And you fully believe, a- as the person running the game, the dungeon master, uh, whatever you are in your ver- version of role-playing game, that their characters should know this. I don't think it's wrong to then go, hey, this is what it is. This is what you see. Yeah. Uh, I I really do try to make sure of of that that they're not taking actions based off of some misconception about what is going on. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, there's um, you know, I I jump off the wall. Well, the wall was 400 feet tall, and now you're dead. Well, they obviously misunderstood some sort of information there. Um, and it w- it's your responsibility to make sure that those ideas that the character sees mm-hmm. are in the player's head. Um, Sarah writes, hold on, I, I don't want to lose this. Sarah writes that she ran a pre-written module for Megan and a few other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she said she'd run it before with lots of combat and death. But with this game, there wasn't one single combat due to the way the players led the story. Another way of saying that is Megan's not an idiot that tries to fight everything. <laughs> so my goal, my goal in any any role-playing game I ever play is to roll as few dice as possible. So, I mean, that's 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 part of it for sure. But yeah, I remember that game very vividly and she has shared that story with, with many uh, DCC folks. Um, that's a dungeon crawl classics, uh, because it is really kind of a combat driven story if you play it a certain way, but we just were very hesitant and avoidy and it was great. Um, we were, we were very much, it was investigating like, a a, a house that was suspicious. It had a lot of suspicious stuff going on. And I mean, I played it like a, a straight up horror game where you you hide behind everything and you make sure you know exactly what you're getting into before you get into it and was real careful. And uh, the party went along with it. Everybody was in agreement to play it that way. And yeah, we got through that uh, with with no combat encounters like and I didn't realize that that was a rare thing until after we were done. And she told us that there was a lot of opportunities to actually have combat in that. Cause in, in the game, it felt like we were playing it right. We had no mm-hmm. idea that there was opportunities for combat that we just flat out missed. Cause we were just playing our version of that story. And there was something else I had from what Carl was saying. And now I've lost it, which is upsetting to me. Cause I felt like it was truly a, a, a golden nugget of, of information that I was going to put out there. But maybe it'll come back to me. <laughs> a ninety a ninety percent chance that you will cross the trap means there's a ten percent chance that you're gonna fall on the pointy sticks. Uh-huh. I remember what it is now. Uh I found it interesting that you were talking about like character knowledge and player knowledge. Because usually when we think about it, it's more more in line of the things of the players have knowledge that the characters don't. Um, and that's sometimes an issue because the the players will make decisions or perform actions that don't really make sense for those characters in those positions. Characters have that insider knowledge. Um, and so that's usually what we talk about when we talk about player knowledge versus character knowledge. But it is true that there are times where a character 
because they're part of this world and directly interacting with things would have knowledge that the players don't have. And I've never really thought of the reverse of that. So that's just an interesting uh, thought that I had when you were talking about that. Well, I, I am resistant. I'm very resistant to the idea of separating player knowledge from character knowledge. I, I, I think of your intelligence score as a number of facts known, and I kind of dislike having a wisdom score, um, which I will probably actually annex from uh, my retro class. Blasphemy. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'll probably rename intelligence to knowledge. This is a measure of things you know, not a measurement of, of uh, how <laughs> apt you apply them. Um, but... What I don't like is you sitting there as a person who has solved the puzzle, looking at your character sheet and saying, well, I'm a half-work barbarian. I shouldn't be solving this puzzle. No, that's not fun. Like, solve the puzzle. Make make it okay. You got a burst of inspiration or, or, or you know, something happened in your brain that you solved it. And there is um, tons of of literary precedent to this. And I'm, oh, yeah. I, I totally believe that uh, role-playing games are a, a, a weird type of literature simulation exercise uh, in, in a big way. They are, they are literature simulation exercises. We are simulating literature that we love, um, mm-hmm. whether it be comic book or horror or fantasy, whatever. Uh, That is what the process of playing a role-playing game is. Um, We are simulating story. And by doing so, telling story. uh, Often uh, in a very more interesting and visceral way than a written word or a film can get. I do think that when the DM forces that hint, you know, the players aren't getting the hint, the characters aren't getting the hint, whatever. Nobody's getting the hint. The puzzle's not getting solved. But if the DM forces that hint, you know, pushes it and pushes it, it takes everyone out of the game. And I think it makes it less. I mean, as a DM, instead of doing that, you know, let them find another way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 not so much what I meant to like force the hint. What I meant would be like. Somebody uh, playing a wizard that steps into a magic circle that the character would know destroys you know uh uh uh, all magic or something you know they they you would know this as a wizard that this is a magic scroll or whatever you know Mm -hmm. um because i i i often introduce people to dungeons and dragons sit them down and let them play uh the first time and it, it it is a it is weird because many times there there are people who sit at my table who have no past fantasy knowledge to pull from. You know, it's not a, it's it's not the, it's not the norm. I I think still the majority of people who are interested in D and D have some sort of um, relationship with Lord of the Rings or World of Warcraft or something. Um, but there's times where people sit down to play at my games who have zero fantasy background information at all, um, and so like even concepts that you would think are like super uh, common, like that what a goblin is, you know, is totally lost on them. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's kind of what I was more alluding to for the player versus character knowledge is because I've, I've had the reverse experience several times where I, as a player, know of a monster, but I have to ask, would my character know what this monster is or or you know and sometimes yeah. i just point blank ask the dm that i'm just like i'm playing a level one character first time in the dungeon i probably don't know what this monster is or how dangerous it is kind of situation yeah. um yeah. so that's a that's a point of contention that i'm really particular about like i want to know as well, as a beginning adventurer in my game the I answer see something is always that, yes yeah, if if I see something that looks uh, scary, um, even if uh, I know as a as a player that it's a, a harmless thing, I'm still going to be very hesitant around it as my character because uh, in my mind, my character's just like, 
I'm that's a monster. I don't want to mess with mm-hmm. that. <laughs> no, if I want a monster to surprise you, I'll make one up. I, mm-hmm. I, you know, if you're a very, very new player, then maybe I'll surprise you with a rust monster or a troll. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I am not going to put you, Megan, against a rust monster or a troll and expect you to play dumb and, mm-hmm. and go blindly into combat until you happen upon some fire or happen to find out that your metal weapons are not being rusted. Because that is 0% fun. I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's just you now have to play dumb with your uh, uh, character and go in there and get beat up I, you know if i'm gonna surprise you with the monster i'll make one up but i'm not going to I, yeah use classic monsters you know what it is now those monsters are still incredibly useful as puzzles right a mm-hmm. rust monster can be a hugely interesting puzzle component uh yeah you know, um and i mean trolls you know you i, I consider it this way these are as famous in their world as lions and tigers and bears are in ours. You know, people are interested in apex predators. You know, it's it's not necessarily uh, that, uh, you know, that, that you would not never have ever heard of a troll being a beginning adventurer. And yeah, so I, I, I'm fine with beginning adventurers ha- having the same knowledge that the person running the character does. You've read a lot of books on monsters let's move forward. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense. I mean, honestly, unless you're just playing the dumbest adventure, you're going to do some research before you go into your first dungeon. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I can definitely see how that is an obvious thing. But I have been in games where that I could tell that that wasn't the intent. Right. Um, because I, I play with all versions of of dungeon masters from across the across the board so uh it's always it's always an interesting experience for me being an experienced player because sometimes i'll sit down where i'm the only experienced player at the table other than the dm and then i kind of have to make some decisions on on how much of my player experience do i want to reflect in my character with this party of people who clearly are kind of you know it it becomes a situation where how much do i want to control the party Mm -hmm. as a player and you never really think about we talked about the dm controlling the party but it's it's amazing how much a single player can control the party Mm -hmm. if they're really pushy and stuff like that and i hate doing that i like as much as i like making choices and moving the story forward i also like giving other players opportunities to do the same and letting it be a real collaborative effort. Right. And then also, um, you know, you don't want to ruin that experience for them. You know, it's a great experience to get, uh, you know, your armor rusted off by a rust oh, monster. Yeah. You know, the first it's time. Fun. You don't want to you don't want to ruin that for that uh, poor sap. Uh, <laughs> um so sh- how much have we actually talked about winging it and should we <laughs> <laughs> should, we, well, I was actually... should we make some references to actually winging it? <laughs> I have a I have a point to the topic at hand. When I uh, form my characters, devise a character to play in D and D, I always want a character that I can really relate to. You know, so I don't have that artificial barrier between mm-hmm. my character and myself. I am not that way. I like to play as many <laughs> and as varied characters as I can. I've noticed. Which is part of the, the, the winging it. Like, I can tie this into the actual topic at hand. But I really enjoy one-offs because it allows me to experiment with a bunch of different types of characters. Whereas I feel like if all I ever played were long-form campaigns um, and I spent a lot of time developing a character beforehand and actually building a character a little bit before I started playing the character, I would end up playing very samey characters. I love sitting down at a one-off and get handed a pre-gen. I'm just like, I'm going to figure out who this character is as we go. And that's some of my favorite role-playing right there. I like playing one-offs because I can rush in where angels fear to tread. If I die, I die. 
So here's some advice on winging it. If you want to uh, uh, wing it, I have some advice for you. I'm winging. I'm winging this winging it advice. You're winging this winging it advice. Okay. Yeah. Um, here's here's just a little bit of practical DM advice I have for anybody who runs Dungeons and Dragons. Your non-player characters don't have to have a Dungeons and Dragons name. John <laughs> and Richard. And George and Harriet and all of these names, Margaret and Catherine, they're just as in-universe in a fantasy medieval world as Xylarthin and Xenopis are. You know, uh, just the, the benefit of that when you're winging it, I mean, I, I've seen people who have lists of names and when they use one, they cross it off. But, um, and that's totally fine. But, um, if you just name somebody something, uh, basic, then your characters are more likely, your players are more likely to remember uh, mm-hmm. the name of the innkeeper if it's not Xylorthop and it's in fact John, you know, or whatever. Now, there's a different way that I do this that's not for everybody, and that is. I make my non-player characters' names jokes. So, uh, if I have if I have a uh, uh, you know a, a a guard that I want to name, I'm very likely going to name that guard Gerard the Guard. Mm-hmm. If I have a an art dealer that they've decided to track down, I'm going to name that art dealer Artie the Art Dealer. Uh, and, uh, I've even, uh, named a lich Richard or rich the lich. So nobody's forgetting those names, you know, in yeah. my, in my group, like nobody's misremembering them. And here's the other benefit to that. I've already made the name a joke. So now they're not shifting it to turn it into some other stupid joke and then making the name also get lost. I make my uh, stupid joke first because if I name it uh, Xylorthop the Lich, they're going to twist that name into something to joke about. But if it's Rich the Lich already, then they're in on the joke. They're making the joke with me and remembering who they're talking about. So when they say we go to that uh, Rich the Lich guy, we all know at the table who who we're speaking of, but that's not for everybody. There's campaigns that are very serious, not not mine. <laughs> <laughs> the stakes are high in my games. The stakes uh, are very high in my games, but they're not serious games. Well, I uh, I have a different um, winging it story. Um, and I kind of wish, I kind of wished. <laughs> I hear mom laughing in the back. Sarah says, totally not for me. I don't like humor. Ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish, wish Sarah was on voice because Sarah, Sarah's had this experience with me, but, uh, I'm sure Carl can attest to this a little bit, uh, as well. But, um, we, uh, me, my sister, Sarah and my brother Kier, started a convention, a board game and other tabletop game conventions uh, uh, that uh, we basically decided to do about two months before we actually held it. And there's something about that momentum for that first year when we had such a short time to do it uh, and we were just winging everything and making it up as we went along that I haven't felt since because we're going on our third year of doing it. And it feels like it's harder to do now that we have more time and we feel like we have more at stake because we've done a couple of successful years and, you know, we know we can do it without it being a complete dumpster fire. So we need to probably continue doing it to where it's not going to be a complete dumpster fire. But that first year when we were just like, let's do this, and we all just, you know, charged full steam ahead and just kind of slapped it together as best we could in the limited time we had, that I really miss because there was something just so motivating and exciting about that, that first year of of completely being unknown. And ever since then, I've always felt 
behind in a weird way because we've never we've since we've done that first year we haven't had the crazy harsh deadlines that we had that that first year and so the fact that we have more time to plan this stuff almost feels like we're behind because we're not constantly working towards the convention the way we were when we first decided to do it but there was something really and and Sarah says in the in the chat that it was really special uh, there's something really special about deciding to do something for the first time, just being like completely dedicated to it and and putting all your effort into it and completely learning as you go along and then actually seeing something successful come out of it. That is that is my that is the embodiment of winging it for me. And I've I've done so many things that way where I've kind of just decided to do something and uh, scrapped it together and was really proud of the outcome, which is why I said that a lot of times when I'm winging something, I feel more proud of the the end result than if I actually do all the prep work and put it all together. Um, there's just something so fulfilling about having a really awesome D&D session or having a really awesome convention or whatever your, your example may be, where when you just let it organically occur and you learn as you go and you you have that develop in a very kind of maddening way but you still pull it off there's something so satisfying about that uh and so like winging it is kind of a, a lifestyle for me and as sarah says it was two months of madness so it's not for everybody as well <laughs> Sarah's also comparing it to theater, which Carl has a background in as well, about, you know, having to put together a show in such a short amount of time. She's typing some more here. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's in it now. Did everyone leave? She said. <laughs> I'm still here. <laughs> she's just like, where did everyone go? <laughs> But yeah, that was a crazy like side tangent. I'm good at those. But the truth of the matter is, winging it is can be applied to a lot of aspects of life. And uh, I, I feel like if you're ever really unsure of something, but you're super passionate about it and you want to just give it a try, my advice is to give it a try. I mean, if it's if it's low low enough risk, I mean, I don't I don't suggest maybe like jumping off of a roof and seeing if you can fly. That may not be the the correct uh, metaphor to use, but there's there's definitely times where people hold themselves back because they feel like they're unqualified. But I feel like I personally thrive in that environment of trying to figure it out as I go along and winging it along the way. And there's a lot of things that that can apply to geek related and not geek related but for the sake of the the name of the podcast you know if you want to if you want to start dming just do it and see see how it how it goes don't get bogged down i am i am definitely one that is guilty as much as i preach for winging it uh guilty of being so convinced that i have to do a huge amount of prep work in order to dm a game and i know that that's not true and I know I would enjoy DMing, but it definitely holds me back because I feel like I need to do a whole lot more prep um, as a DM than I feel like I have time for. And it's it's definitely been a roadblock for me. Conley started DMing. And last Friday night, you could tell he played better. I mean, mm -hmm. he'd been DMing a few sessions and he played better. He was more on top of it. He was more involved. I have a lot of ideas. Usually it's the system stuff, like actually finding a game system that I resonate with and learning it well enough to feel like I could run that game. But I feel like I have a lot of ideas that I would really like to see in in a campaign. And I know that the only way that I'm going to see those ideas is if I run those games. But... Uh, it is it is a perspective that I don't have a lot of experience in. I, I DM'd some in high school for some friends, but it was it was real winging it. It was like I didn't even try. I just made up everything on the spot, and it was completely sandbox game, which was fine for what we were doing. But 
I would I would really like to take some time to de- develop just a little bit more of these these ideas that I have and actually sit down and and play a game of of whatever role playing game I choose as as the the dungeon master or insert title. Um, I got two words for you, or possibly one word. <laughs> Dwimmer Star. <laughs> Um, and I know there's I a would... lot of light light <laughs> systems out there. Um, but I think another issue that I have, and it's not a complicated system, but I've had the Doctor Who, and Doctor Who's already been mentioned tonight, so we're going to bring it up again, but the Doctor Who role-playing uh, core rulebook on my shelf for a while. And I have, like, just the perfect concept for an easy one-off that I could do on repeat at different game days and conventions and whatnot that would just it would just work so well. And I just got to sit down and read that rule book and then I'd be good to go. Cause I know it's not a complicated system. I think it's a D six system. Um, and it's definitely made for people who don't have a lot of experience with role playing games because of the brand of it. I just got to do it, but I, I can't, uh, that's my roadblock. That's my, my winging it roadblock where I, I just need to take the, the, the time to, flip through that even if i don't absorb it all flip through it a little bit and run a game and see what happens have you considered a system like rhesus uh, uh rhesus is a system that's four pages long it's called the anything rpg and it's a role-playing game where it relies on the shared knowledge of a theme um around the table so like hmm. the argument they make is that you don't really need a whole system to run a firefly rpg if everybody around the table is a big huge firefly fan you just kind yeah. of have to know what is right and what is wrong within that universe and some simple dice mechanics yeah that makes that makes a lot of sense because i mean truthfully if I'm going to sit down and run a Doctor Who RPG, uh, I'm fairly certain that the people who are going to sign up for that have some some Doctor Who knowledge. So you're right on that. You don't really need to spend a lot of time explaining the world and how it works if all of the the players already are familiar with the world. You can just kind of go by common sense as you progress through the story. I like that. I need to look that up. I always loved playing so much that I never DM'd. But uh, um, after we started writing these modules, then it encouraged me to DM because mm-hmm. I wanted to see how the modules work. Well, and I've definitely, I've had a similar experience there. When we get together as a family, I never really think about DMing because we have so many people in our family who really genuinely enjoy DMing, like enjoy it more than playing. Um, And so it's never been something that I've been motivated to do. But the more that I play with other people or get involved in other game groups, I'm just like, man, I should I should learn how to run a game. (laughs) I heard that is these other DMs suck. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm talking about board game groups that are interested. in. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry. (laughs) After playing um, with the DMs in our family, it's uh, it's it's hard to accept mediocrity. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I've definitely had that experience where I sat down with another DM and got a few minutes in and be like, "Oh, this this was a mistake." Mm. But that's never really motivated me to be like, "Well, I want a DM for this party." It's usually it's usually a mistake beyond just their DMing abilities. It's 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 a it's a personal thing at that point. <laughs> <laughs> they could be the greatest DM of all time, and I'm still just like, hmm. Not enjoying this game. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So how are we signing this off? Shut her down. Shut her down. (laughs) Fill the calls with concrete. (laughs) I don't want anyone ever coming back in here. (laughs) (laughs) I hope we had as much fun as you did. Oh. Well, there you go. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Related to Geeks podcast. It is it is literally just family in here right now. Everybody else is like, no, peace and out. <laughs> All right. You have been listening to the Related to Geeks podcast, recorded September 2nd, 2019 on the Gamer Plus Inspired on Reality Open Game Chat, held at Tanker's Tavern on Discord. For more about our geeky family, visit relatedtogeeks.com. For more information about Inspired on Reality, join Gamer Plus, a social network for gamers, at gamerplus.org. Music for this show provided by NJHB playing Low Earth Orbit. Hear more jazz from NJHB at harrylarryland.com. <laughs>